live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you for coming tonight, even though I understand you're leaving to Italy in a few hours. Yes, for a few days. And that is taking people along, I guess, one of you at all? Yes. Very good. And this is part three of the series on 17th century traitors. Um, The last one, Shabtai Tzvi, there was a lot of feedback that had come in. Many said that it was their favorite series yet. So I'm not sure if... uh, We did did touch on that at the beginning of last week's. Yeah, so please do keep sending a feedback. Um, Rabbi Hirsch very much enjoys the compliments. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Part one of Spinoza this week. So there's going to be part two where you're going to be linking them together. And this is just going to give us some background on who Spinoza was. Yes, he is an unusual and divisive character. Born as Boruch Spinoza in 1632 in Amsterdam to a father who was one of the representatives of the Jewish board. Uh, But he dies as Benedict Spinoza in 1677 and is buried in a church graveyard in The Hague. He was during his lifetime at one stage a pupil of the main rabbi, Rabbi Mortira and others. But in 1656, he was subjected to a ban, a cherem, which has never been rescinded to this day. And I say to this day because in 2015, there was a commission which looked into rescinding it, but by a vote of three to one, it was not done. So it's still a live issue in some ways. And he became one of the foremost thinkers of the Enlightenment and of the 17th century, one of the most important philosophers of that period. I mean, you labelled him a traitor, so he must have done something particularly bad to the Jews. Why isn't he that well known? I mean, people have heard of him, but not to the extent of Shabtai Tzvi and the ripple effects he had. Okay, the effect is more to Judaism than the Jews. We will try and enlighten you pun intended, Hmm. Uh, we will look at the background first. Abraham de Spinoza de Nantes came from Spanish Jewish family origins, which had escaped to Portugal in the 15th century. The first record of him is in Nantes in France in 1596. He fled there probably in the early 1590s, most likely with his sister Sarah and a brother Isaac, who was Spinoza's grandfather. It could be that some relative or friend had recently been denounced as a Jew to the local tribunal, and the Inquisition were rarely satisfied with single individuals, and they had ways of getting more names. And therefore, often, as soon as a converso clan was suspected that the authorities were taking an interest in even one of its numbers, they all departed en masse as soon as they could. Spinoza's father, Michael, was born in Portugal in 1587 and married his first cousin, Hannah, Abraham's daughter. And Michael will become relatively successful during his lifetime, importing fruits and oil and other goods. And in 1629, Michael and Hannah had a daughter. In 1631, they had a son, 
Isaac, named after his father's father. And in November 1632, Hannah gave birth to a second son called Bento, or in Hebrew, Baruch, named for his mother's father, who had died in 1618 and who had never joined the Sephardi congregation in the city. In fact, he wasn't even circumcised when he died, which wasn't unheard of for returning Murano Jews, and it might even have been a deliberate choice to be able to still pass as a Christian and continue business in Antwerp, where he often lived. At the request of his family, though, he was circumcised post-mortem, which allowed him to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. To give you an idea of the life in Amsterdam that Baruch Spinoza would have grown up in, behind his house, on the diagonally opposite corner, was Rembrandt's house. And around the corner from Spinoza was the house of Rabbi Nasher ben Yisrael. Got to be careful giving all your insider secrets. Yes, that's true, but I haven't given his exact address. <laughs> have to wait to come on tour for that. What language does he speak? The language in the home was Portuguese. The men also spoke Spanish. And of course, all the boys in the three Sephardi communities were required to study uh, Hebrew, Lushan Kodesh in school. And Spinoza did so. Although the older generation, who had been raised in Catholic environments, may have only had a passing familiarity with Hebrew. And most of the members of the family must have learned how to read and speak a certain level of Dutch, because this was necessary for getting around. Now, Michael's family and assets grew, and so did his involvement in the Portuguese Jewish community. He became part of the governing board for one of the Kehilais, but the 1630s were trying years for Amsterdam's Portuguese Jewish community, mainly due, due to two crises, the first of which drew out underlying differences within the communities, between the rabbis, because it impacted on a very deep issue for the Kehila, which in other Jewish cities would simply have been two opinions about Judaism. But in post-Morano Amsterdam, it was like lighting a fuse. And the rift actually led to the departure of one of the rabbis from Amsterdam. As a result of the scandal. Well, actually, it's a result of how to understand an idea in Judaism, which sounds minor. But we need to realize Amsterdam's Jewish community in the 1630s was 30 years old. I don't mean that the Jews had recently moved there, you know, expanded from Lakewood into Tom's River. I mean that the Jews themselves had only 30 years of being Jewish. Until then, they'd been Catholics in Portugal, in Spain, which had required enormous tenacity, indescribable heroism on their behalf, just to hold on to anything that was Jewish, to a Jewish identity. But equally, it meant that they had literally no knowledge, no background, no traditions. There basically wasn't a single Jewish book anywhere in either of those two entire countries. So when they come to Amsterdam, the Kehillah needed to ensure that this very fluid environment had rules which were very clear. So 
any Jew of the uh, Portuguese and Spanish nation, as it was referred to, who lived in Amsterdam could become a member of this congregation. And interestingly, non-Sephardic Jews could not become members. They could only attend services with special permission. But for the Sephardim, they could join quite easily. But it was made very clear, if you join, this is what you're signing up to. And of note is the fact that the rabbis were not the executives of the community. They didn't run the congregation's day-to-day affairs. They couldn't advocate in secular matters, nor even in the community's religious life. Uh, The executive board was the highest authority of the community, which included the right to excommunicate members. It was a board of laymen, 15 men. There was no outside consultation or oversight over this ma'amad or over the election of its members. The only limitation was that one has to have been a Jew for at least three years. And the members of the ma'amad imposed the community's taxes. They ran the schools. They oversaw shechita, the training of the shachtim. They authorized the publication of books. They gave permission for Portuguese and Spanish returnees to undergo circumcision, um, to return to Judaism. In other words, they authorized divorce proceedings. What, even in matters of halacha? Now, obviously, something which needed a rabbi or a bezdin would be brought to the rabbi. The layman didn't sign Gittin, but the power and the ultimate say was in the hands of the Mahmud. Now, in 1636, Rabbi Yitzhak Avav de Fonseca was the rabbi of the Beis Yisrael congregation. He had been born a Murano, new Christian in Portugal in 1605. His family moved to Amsterdam in 1612, while he was still a young boy, but he must have been quite gifted, because by 1626, when he is only 21 years old, he was already appointed a chacham for this congregation. He had a strong interest in Kabbalah, and in that way, he could not have been more unlike Rabbi Moltera of the Beis Yaakov community who was inclined towards a rationalistic, a philosophical approach to Judaism. And Rabbi Mortera, although the name doesn't sound it, was actually Ashkenazi and had never gone through the Murano experience. The cause celebre, so to speak, was the status of Amsterdam's fellow Jews and family who were still in Spain and Portugal and who, although of uh, Jewish uh, matrilineal descent, were living Christian lives. Were they still Jews, particularly? What did their continued apostasy mean for the fate of their soul after they died? There's a very famous Mishnah in Sanhedrin, which says, Kol Yisrael chelek. All Jews have a portion in the world to come. Does that mean that whoever is a Jew, no matter how grave their sin, no matter how long they remained a sinner, has an eventual place in the world to come? Well, the Gemara seems to list quite a few exceptions. Right. 
So Rabbi Mortera, therefore, did not believe so. According to him, Yisrael refers to a righteous individual and someone who has denied the principles of faith is not righteous. But what could these Jews in Spain actually do? Okay, so at the very minimum, they presumably needed to die as Jews, not necessarily asking that they all gave up their life, which at the time would have possibly endangered the whole family. But whatever gap was provided for them, they needed to use. I don't mean to put on tefillin, but to live the faith of a Jew, or equally, to take any opportunity to leave, even at the cost of abandoning all their possessions, as all those Jews did who left in 1492 and 1497. Now, Obviously, a significant number of members of the Amsterdam community believed in the unconditional, quote-unquote, salvation of all Jewish souls, which is obviously an attractive thesis for former Moranos. And therefore, this isn't simply a sort of a theoretical discussion about the interpretation of a Mishnah. It makes a big difference. Since this matter was too big for the relatively young community to handle, they turned to the Venice Besdin. Both sides submit their arguments in writing, and Rabbi Mortira brings a wealth of textual evidence from the Gemara and the Rambam, noting, as you said, that it seems to be one way rather than the other. To the rabbis in Venice, it was a delicate matter. They also were surrounded by former New Christians, and their initial recommendation was that the lay leaders of the Amsterdam community tried to find a way to settle it amongst themselves mainly by persuading Rabbi Avohav to publicly renounce his opinion. But this approach didn't work. And in fact, Rabbi Avohav wrote a sefer called Nishmas Chaim, where he explained that the true answers to these questions are to be found in Kabbalah, not in the Gemara. And that all Jewish souls ultimately will receive their salvation. And in 1639, the three Svardi Kihilas came together under one umbrella organization. This is unlike the Jews of Salonika, who had five Spanish and three Portuguese Kihilas. And in 1642, Rabbi Avoav left for Brazil to be the rabbi to the Amsterdam Jews who had settled in Recife. And his departure is likely the result of lingering tensions with Rabbi Mortera, who had become the senior rabbi in Amsterdam, and these different opinions divided them. So the whole issue was basically highlighting the tensions of a community that is, so to speak, finding its feet in Judaism. Yeah, very much so. The second issue is perhaps even more public and obvious, and that is Uriel de Costa who was born around 1585 in Porto, in Portugal. He was not made aware that he was Jewish until he was a teenager, by which time he had become involved in Christian studies, unsurprisingly. In 1612, he and his three brothers managed to leave. Two go to Hamburg, and two, of which he is one, go to Amsterdam, where they undergo brismila, and they start to learn the laws and observances of Jewish life. Until now, they've just read the Bible. They've just read it in Latin and clearly have never seen a Jewish commentary. But as da Costa describes it, disappointment quickly followed. He claims that the religion of the Jews was the religion of the Chumash, of the Bible, a pure devotion to the laws of Moses 
and not some rabbinically altered religion of meaningless rules. But what did he know? I mean, he wasn't basing himself on having seen this type of Judaism practiced anywhere. He, he, he knew nothing. Yeah. Yeah, in other words, uh, he couldn't have seen a Judaism based on the literal fulfillment of the verses of Tanakh, I guess not unless he went back 500 years in time to the Karaites in the Middle East. This, though, is another example of the after effects of Murano Judaism. People, while they were still in a state of not being able to return, made assumptions about what Judaism must have been or actually is. Remember, these Jews had never seen a Jew in their life ever. So it's all based on no knowledge and no tradition and the snippets that you assume you've picked up. And he actually goes as far as to write a publication with his views that Judaism, current Judaism, was false. Venice responded to da Costa with a cherem on August 14th, 1618. In Amsterdam, he continues to teach or propound his views, including the fact that, therefore, the oral law is false, the written law doesn't need any interpretation, and therefore that the present halachic rules were the invention of ambitious, evil men. He rejects the use of tefillin, mezuzah. Unsurprisingly, the Amsterdam community put him in cherem too. Uh, But to give you an idea of how seriously people took these measures, Uriel's brothers fully abided by the terms of the excommunication. They broke off all ties with him. And eventually, da Costa decides that the solitary life that this harem had led to was impossible to live, particularly from a financial perspective. You can't do business with the person. And he resolves to reconcile with the Jewish community. He may also have been motivated by a, a desire to marry, which obviously you could not do if you were under the ban. And he publicly retracts his opinion. But it didn't last for long. His nephew told the authorities that da Costa was violating the dietary laws. And more seriously, he was caught trying to dissuade two Christians, one from Spain and one from Italy, from converting to Judaism. Although that is something we do. Not once they have shown their continued interest in the the initial, absolutely. But clearly, if he's actively dissuading them, that's a step uh, too far. So in 1633, a new harem is produced against him. And then seven years later, in 1640, he is poor, he is alone, he changes his mind again. And as he records it, I entered the synagogue. I read out in a clear voice the text of my confession composed by them, the Mahmud, that my deeds made me worthy to die a thousand times. I had violated Shabbos. I had not kept the faith. I had even gone so far as to dissuade others from becoming Jewish. I consented to fully fulfill the obligations they presented to me. But it was clearly more than he could actually swallow. And a few days later, having now concluded the writing of his autobiography, which he ends by accusing the Amsterdam magistrate, non-Jewish court, of not protecting him from the injustices perpetrated against him by what he called the Pharisees, he killed himself. And all of this is taking place in a community in which Spinoza is being raised. So you're suggesting that this directly contributed to what Spinoza became? Well, did Spinoza learn from either of these arguments? It's difficult to know as such, It definitely didn't help. Right. Now, meanwhile, in the Spinoza home, in 1638, so while this is all happening, Spinoza's mother, Anna Deborah, 
died when Baruch Spinoza was only six years old. And a year later, the 52-year-old father, Michael, marries Esther. His stepmother was around 40 years old at the time and had arrived from Lisbon within the year, within the last 12 months, having lived, therefore, as a crypto-Jew for most of her life, which means that her home did not have any solid foundations of Judaism, which could have also been a factor in how Spinoza turns out. Now, Spinoza had been studying in the Talmud here in Amsterdam. We have records still available. But in the last two years of the uh, grades of the Amsterdam Yeshiva, his name does not appear in the ledger, neither for negative reasons like turning up late, which would be recorded, nor for achievement. And he was very bright, very. So the assumption is that he was no longer part in the Yeshiva, having gone to work, dropping out at the age of 17 to work in the family import business. This means in terms of Torah knowledge that while he could read Hebrew and had learnt parts of Tanakh, he never really picked up the skills to learn a Rambam, even though he read the Guide to the Perplex, as we know. But he couldn't open a sugya in the Talmud, and this is an important issue. Spinoza's father died in 1654, when Spinoza is 21. And he says Kaddish for 11 months, as required by Jewish law, and in Tishri, in September of 1654, Spinoza also takes over the payments of charity for his family to the synagogue. And he made the significant contribution that his family had made until that point in time. But a year later, 1655, he pledged a noticeably smaller sum. It is true that at that time, the family import business was in debt. And in fact, in March 1656, Spinoza filed suit with the Amsterdam municipal authorities to be declared an orphan, which allowed him to inherit his mother's estate without it being subject to his father's creditors. But he didn't do this in a bezdin, which is required in halacha, and at the time would have been a serious departure from what the community required. Nowadays, you know, people don't care anymore, unfortunately. But at the time, it would have made a very real difference. And in fact, as a result, by going to the secular authorities, he obtained a judgment which is contrary to Jewish law and discharged his debts. And we will come back to this. It is also true to say at this time that clearly his interest in Judaism had become of diminished importance and interest. You know, the learning which he had devoted a lot of his time to was now not enough to satisfy his intellectual interests. But then there is the bombshell. On July 27th, 1656, which is the 6th of Av, he is the subject of a cherem of an excommunication. He wasn't the only one by the sound of things. Cherems were quite uh, generously given. Yes, that's true. Uh, in fact, the historian Joseph Kaplan, Joseph Kaplan, who is an authority on Amsterdam Jewry, has discovered 39 men and one woman who were excommunicated in the congregation for periods ranging from one day to 11 years. <laughs> In other words, disregarding the Rambam's admonition to use this form of punishment sparingly, 
Amsterdam's Sephardic leaders employed it widely. Remember, this is the Mahmud, not the rabbis per se, in order to maintain discipline and enforce conformity within the community. In many cases, excommunication was the outcome of breaking community laws, establishing a minion for prayer outside the congregation, disobeying the orders of the Mahmud, buying meat from an Ashkenazi butcher, <laughs> right? And then more ethical considerations, gambling. And there were those which the rabbis recommended to the Mahmud as well. But this is different because this is the most vitriolic ban ever issued in Amsterdam. And I will quote some of the text which was read from the in front of the Ark of the Portuguese Jewish synagogue, which you can still visit to this day. The seniors of the Mahmud make it known to you that they have been aware for some time of the evil opinions and acts of Baruch de Spinoza, and that they have endeavoured by various means and promises to turn him from his evil ways. But being unable to effect any remedy, and on the contrary, each day receiving more information about the abominable heresies which he practised and taught, and about the monstrous deeds which he performed, and having many trustworthy witnesses who have reported and testified on all of this, and having examined in the presence of rabbis, the members of the Mahmud have decided that the said Espinosa should be banned and separated for the nation of Israel and put him under Cherem. They ostracize and curse and damn Baruch de Spinoza with the consent of God and with the consent of this entire holy congregation before these holy scrolls in which the 613 commandments are written with the cherem that Yeshua put upon Yerichai, with all the curses that are written in the Torah, cursed be he by day, cursed be he by night, cursed be he when he lies down, cursed be he when he rises up. <laughs> Not much room for error. <laughs> Not much room. The document concludes with the warning that no one should communicate with him orally or in writing, provide him any favor, be with him under the same roof, nor be within Dalad Amos within two meters of him, nor read any paper composed or written by him. So he is shunned by Jewish society at the age of 23, including by his own family, which will have a tremendous social, emotional and religious impact. What did he do? Okay. So it's interesting. Neither the cherem itself nor any documents from 1656 tell us exactly what his evil opinions and acts were supposed to have been, nor the abominable heresies or monstrous deed. We don't have detail. Did he never write anything? He does not refer to this period of his life in the letters that we have. Many of the letters were burnt because the people who took care of publicizing his writings were non-Jews and they only kept those that had philosophical value. So we don't have specific information, but we do have a lot of general information. The relevant topic is his view on religion and God at this point. He had clearly developed highly controversial ideas regarding the authenticity of the Bible and the nature of God. Initially, it's possible that Spinoza kept these questions to himself, but he'd clearly decided, as he writes, that henceforth he would work on his own and spare no efforts to discover the truth himself. And he is likely openly expressing some level of hostility to formal and religious Judaism at this point. And because he is in the business world, his contacts in the Dutch world 
particularly the friendships from business relationships at the bourse or the exchange, would only have encouraged him to widen his intellectual pursuits. And sometime between 1654 and 1658, Spinoza begins to study Latin with Franciscus van der Emden, who was a former Jesuit who became a political radical and an atheist. And he introduced Spinoza to philosophers, including Descartes, which we will speak about more next week. And in fact, one of the primary ideas of one of the books that Spinoza would write, the Theological Political Treatise, is that Chumash was not written by Moshe, by Moses, nor are any of its commandments of divine origin. It's the work of a number of later authors and editors. In fact, ironically, Spinoza lived where the Moses and Aaron church is located nowadays, very visibly, uh, and he was probably born in that building. It is unlikely that the community's rabbis and Mahmud simply cut him off without making some real effort to persuade him to return to the congregation's fold. In fact, in, in the Cherem document, it says they have endeavored by various means and promises you know, to turn him from his evil ways. But here's the big, big but. The Amsterdam Jewish community, made up, as we know, largely of Spanish and Portuguese former Moranos, was very concerned to protect its reputation from any Spinoza, from any association with Spinoza, because they didn't want his controversial views to provide the basis for their own possible expulsion. At the time, the Jews were still officially considered resident aliens in the Dutch Republic. It wasn't until 1657 that they were declared to be truly subject and residents of the United Netherlands. And although there is no evidence that the Amsterdam municipal authorities were involved in Spinoza's harem, but as early as 1619, the town council expressly ordered the Portuguese Jewish community to regulate their conduct and ensure that the members of the community kept to a strict observance of Jewish law. That's what the secular authorities want from the Jews. Why? Because they don't want a community which brings non-Jews to heresy, which means that the issue of Spinoza's harem was self-censorship to some degree by the Portuguese Jewish community. They wanted to reassure the city authorities that they were loyal and they weren't a haven for heretics. I mean, to understand how negatively his ideas were received by the non-Jewish authorities in the Netherlands, in June 1678, this is a year after Spinoza dies, it's quite a bit later, the states of Holland banned his entire works since they contain, and I quote, very many profane, blasphemous and atheistic propositions for the non-Jews. Now, it's interesting, he is frequently referred to as an atheist, but the truth is, it's somewhat ironically, that nowhere in his works does he argue against the existence of God. We'll discuss this more next week. Now, in addition to all this, there is the reaction to the monstrous deed, which is likely, it's not proven, but likely the fact that he, contrary to the regulation of the synagogue, filed suit in a civil court. And once again, the secular authorities wanted to know that Jews aren't getting out of their financial commitments 
which would have potentially added impetus to the ban, but it's clearly not the main reason for it. It is his views of God, of Torah, which very basically denied essentials of faith. Is this the first time that we know of that the non-Jews got involved in a heretic being too dangerous? So, as I say, it's not that they got involved, but that the Jewish community is aware of what type of conformity the non-Jews want from them. You know, maybe he could have slipped under the radar. Maybe they would never have found out. Did they know about the Costa, for instance? Possibly not. But that would certainly explain why he didn't go to the authorities, because the level of Hiram means he could barely move as a citizen. But that's, he would have been too... That's correct. He had the right of appeal to the city's magistrates, and Spinoza did not appeal to them. And he never repented, so the ban was never withdrawn. It is said that he wrote an apology, a defense, not an apology as we normally understand it, in Spanish to the elders of the synagogue, in which he defended his views as being orthodox and condemned the rabbis for accusing him of practices and other enormities merely because he had neglected ceremonial observances. But that doesn't quite ring true. Spinoza now adopts the Latin name Benedictus, And he lives now with this van den Enden, this atheist, former Jesuit, and teaches in his school. And he devotes himself chiefly to the study of philosophy, especially the Cartesian system, the the, the system uh, expounded by Descartes. And he will make a living as a lens grinder, although he will also receive grants at various stages in his life. Interestingly, in terms of philosophy, Spinoza is very different to Moses Mendelssohn 100 years later. Mendelssohn is big for the Jews, but on the general non-Jewish philosophical scene, he's basically unknown outside of his own lifetime, whereas Spinoza is well known to the non-Jews, but is pretty much unknown for his philosophy in the Jewish world. So you can be excused for your comment at the very beginning of not really knowing much about him. But his ideas are still being talked about 300 years later, which is impressive. And it means that he was clearly a genius. I'm still a bit unclear about something. I mean, you label him as a traitor and you even put him in the same series as Shabtai Tzvi. Right. I mean, for sure he turned his back on Judaism, but he couldn't have been the only one. There was so much confusion at that time. No one knew No one knew much. Why was there such a strong reaction to him? So had he kept his views to himself, I agree. He would not have been the only one. But we will see next week what he went on to, quote unquote, achieve. And how given that this is occurring at the same time as Shabtai Tzvi, which is seemingly completely unconnected, between the two, they will create the greatest defection from Judaism, possibly of all time. You know, any decent detective handbook will tell you that you need three things to carry out a crime. Motive, means, and opportunity. Shabtai Tzvi is the motive Spinoza is the means, and enlightenment will be the opportunity. All coming your way next week. <laughs> okay, safe trip to Italy, Rabbi Hirsch. And due to the fact that you're spending a few days there, there might be a lateness in the arrival of the 
final <laughs> by a day or episode. Two. Yes. So thank you for that. And as usual, please do send all your feedback, questions, comments, especially that we're approaching the end of a series. We'd like to read out the best ones to podcasts at jaylee.org.uk. Please make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss another episode and make sure you like these episodes on whichever platform you're listening on. It just makes it a lot easier for other people to find them too. Thank you and good night.